0: I've been thinking about this if there is a commentary on our current uh, climate of LGBTQ if if the gospel does say something about it it is that there needs to be this retention of this divine difference and the coming together of of different agents into one so I, I do think traditional marriage is held up by the gospel because it is a heterogeneous union.
1: Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast. Uh, we're seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover the gospel. We're in a series called According to Scripture. This is uh, session two, One Flesh. That's our title today, mm-hmm. One Flesh. That's our theme. We're trying to impact this theme of One fat, one Flesh throughout Scripture, and you know, uh we could, set, we could start by talking about how, well, humanity is... You could not describe humanity as one flesh today. The situation Uh-oh. in our culture is divided. Divided humanity. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're, we're claiming that God's plan all along was to make us one flesh. Um, Nathan, begin to give us some background on this biblical idea of one
0: flesh. Background. Well, um, it seems to... Man... <laughs> where do I start <laughs> right it, it is the background one flesh is the background it's um it's this uh you know I, I think that Paul as he was getting as he was going through the book uh you know this his, the Torah the Hebrew scriptures and he was contemplating the gospel I think he encountered very early this story in Genesis 2 about the first couple and God's design for their union was that they would be one flesh. So that seems kind of, I don't know, excessive, uh, you know, in marriage. It's like, uh, how about if we just be like one household or, um, you know, a Mm -hmm. community or Mm -hmm. something, not one person. What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. You know, it just seems like a lot to expect from people. And so, uh, but, What's Texas that verse? to be the intention. Um, Genesis 2. <clears throat> so Adam, you know, God's brought in lots of potential companions from the animal kingdom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, finally arrives at the idea of the... I mean, I'm, I'm using accommodative language, as you know. But mm-hmm. uh, takes this woman, you know, takes his rib, right? And, and whether you see this as literal or or somehow metaphorical or whatever but you know there's this idea that uh, the man and the woman are of the same substance Mm -hmm. and so they are united and adam or you know proclaims this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man and that is why uh in the older translations it says a man will leave his father and his mother, and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the Septuagint, it says, and the two, uh, the Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the two will become one flesh. So The, the two is a, a way of putting emphasis on the fact that the two are
1: becoming one. Right.
0: Um, the many are becoming one. Right, yeah, so there's this two becoming one, that um, was, you know, it's, it's a mystery. You know, I don't know if you've been to very many weddings and I'm really speaking more to the audience, I guess. I know you have, mm-hmm. Kent, but, mm-hmm. you know, when you go, there's this kind of a standard thing that the pastor will say that this is a mystery, you know, that, that God has, has instituted marriage that uh, as a depiction of Christ and his bride, right? So,
1: yeah, we say that a lot because Paul said that in Ephesians. he quoted this passage.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, in this passage, Paul, as you know, didn't have a new Testament. So if he's contemplating Jesus in scripture, he's got to use the old. And, uh, so in this passage, what it seems that Paul saw was a messianic prediction or something about Jesus here in a story about humankind and marriage. And, uh, so, For him, this wasn't just um, an axiom. So, you know, we always take this as this kind of uh, a standard practice, a statement of of a protocol that that relates to marriage or regards marriage. And that is that a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they should become one flesh, right? And so, and we have, you know, we even say we using the old English, we say leave and cleave, right? That's what Mm -hmm. we should do. Mm -hmm. And we often counsel people, hey, you need to get some distance between your household and your family of origin so that things don't get messed up by your wife's mother-in-law, right? Uh, Or however we conceive of that. And maybe that's good advice. Uh, The only problem with that is, is that Adam at this time didn't didn't have a mom or dad, at least as the story goes, and and so this this counsel doesn't seem to much relate uh, to at least what Adam did. It doesn't seem like it would have occurred to him to uh, that it was important to leave your parents. Um, the other thing is is that it wasn't the Jews didn't follow this advice, uh, as you look at you know just throughout um, just history the customs of the Hebrew people, Jesus speaks himself as he's using kind of this marital language toward his church in John 14 he says I'm going to go and prepare a place and so there's this idea that he's going to build on to his dad's house. Right? That was that was actually Jewish, Jewish tradition. tradition, right? So not only did they not leave, they built on and that's a practical necessity especially for householders, people who were landed that you, you know why would you go? I mean, Jesus depicts a son who leaves his family's household, doesn't he?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. Right? The prodigal, right?
0: Yeah, not a positive thing. Okay. So, was this advice that people should <clears throat> put some distance between themselves and their family of origin? Doesn't seem to be the case. What well, what's being said here? Well, and it, um, it's originally in in both languages. B. It's framed in future tense, which could be uh, kind of this advice like you you will and that you know you will go and do that kind of a command a directive imperative but can also be a predictive right so Paul as he read that saw it as predictive that um, that there will be a man who will leave his father and then he will leave his mother and he will join his wife Right, mm-hmm. and the two of them will become one flesh. Who's his wife? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, wait, wait.
1: Did the audience catch what you were getting at there? Right. <laughs> so Paul is seeing Jesus in Genesis chapter two. Mm-hmm. Now that he's going back and he's reading the scriptures differently in light of Christ, he's seeing Christ in places and in ways he hadn't seen Christ before, seeing things as predictive or prophetic in ways that he hadn't before. Right. So he's seeing this as um, a promise of what Christ will do. He will leave his father and right. his mother, and he will join and, and he will hold fast to his wife, the church. Right. The two will become one flesh. And Paul, Paul says in Ephesians when he quotes that Genesis two passage, he says um, something like, "I am saying this is a mystery, but it refers to Christ and the church." Right. So it's like he's saying. I'm trying to tell you guys that the passage I quoted from Genesis two is really about Christ and the church. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, um, in Ephesians five, where he says, the husbands love your wives. And as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And so he, he seems to have this kind of marriage mentality when it comes to Jesus and the church, he did all this to make her a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. Um, and and then he says for we are members he says this uh, that we ought to love our wives and uh, he says no one ever hated their own body but they feed and care for their body as Christ does the church. Um, so think about about that. that um, I, Paul I, you know we, we read this this idea that, um, that Christ is, uh, is, the, is the husband of his bride, the church, and that they are one flesh. And we, and we see in there a metaphor, but I don't think Paul is trying to be metaphorical, not entirely, because he, uh, he seems to be an actual, describing an actual organic connection that's there. Uh, he says, for we are members of his body for this reason, and this is the way he quotes it, this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, he says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. <laughs> Just sitting here now, I think uh, maybe Paul got this idea uh, from how Jesus introduced himself to him. Do you remember that story?
1: Yeah, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, persecuting who? Yeah, me, Jesus. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. he is persecuting the church. Right. Jesus says he's persecuting Jesus.
0: Exactly. Yeah, there seems to be this connectedness that's there between Christ and his people that is so organic that if I were to hit your thumb with a hammer christ would cry out i'm Mm -hmm. not saying that that's exactly but you know Mm -hmm. i'm not -hmm. saying that that necessarily would happen but it is that's that close so there's this connectedness that is there and we may wonder well how is that the case um malachi 2 god is is coming down on israel right uh and and he says you know i've got i've got beef with you right i you um you come and you, and you pour out your tears on my altar and I'm not going to listen to you. And they're like, why? What's happened? You know. And um, he says, another thing you do, Malachi 2.13. Um, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. The wife of your marriage covenant has not the one God made you. So there's a union between them just from creation. You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Um, the NIV says godly offspring. This one's a tough one for, uh, the translators to, to get. It is literally offspring gods. We'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, what does the one God seek, offspring gods? So here's this irony that there is one God who seeks offspring gods. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if we lost our listeners or if they perked up there. <laughs> <laughs> so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord, the, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect he says, the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So there's this connection that God has, right? Um, in, um, I'll switch over to a different translation here. He, uh, he says that he made them one. He says uh, in Malachi 2.15 in the ESV, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union and so if as I'm sitting here my body you know in an ancient concept context my body is is cohering to itself because of the breath within it um, or the spirit There's this is breath the word breath the word spirit or the same word in Hebrew and in Greek and so there's this breath within my body. Should the breath depart my body, my body will begin to immediately degrade into its constituent parts, um, in micro ways at first, and then more pronounced as time goes on. So my body coheres to itself because of the breath or the spirit, this life force, this essential life force, this presence within me, right? And this spirit, as a a consciousness, uh, you know, it's intertwined with that. So what he seems to be saying is, is that God in breathing his spirit into Adam and then taking a portion of Adam who presumably is indwelt by that spirit, right? And taking that and fashioning another flesh entity from this spirit indwelt person. Mm Mm-hmm has now made the two into one that the presence of one spirit in two physical entities creates a singular physical being or physical yeah physical being so the two become one flesh according to malachi and that the purpose of this union of of this shared spirit in two bodies is that there would be offspring gods
1: Okay. Okay. That, 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 that 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 what they have would multiply. Right, right. The one God. Are you talking about their children? Or well, they are the offspring gods. So the well, one God has uh, made offspring gods. Their children. Okay.
0: That's I mean in in the context of marriage. Mm-hmm. What is he saying? Man, I was just reading this morning in on on the BBC. They were talking about Mauritania has a div- they have divorce parties. Um, and so divorce is so common in Mauritania. That they just it's almost like a uh, a coming out party for a debutante, except it's coming back out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so some of the people in Mauritania are divorced and married ten, fifteen times. Basically, it's just promiscuity with a piece of paper, mm-hmm. you know, being handed around. and and they acted in the article like this was because there was a women's liberation or something like that, except who's left, you know, uh, holding the children. Mm -hmm. You can't, I can't imagine that a society like that, uh, could do very well at raising their kids. Um, since you could potentially have 10 step parents on either side, Mm -hmm. if you were the child, right. Mm -hmm. And not have a clue who to really look to as, as your nurturer, your provider, your protector. Uh, it seems like there'd be a lot of exploitation, especially of young women in that society. That's what I would predict. I haven't dug into it, but uh, y'all go ahead, right? <laughs> yep. and, and, um, and so there's something that is um, corrupt and it is degrading in a society when a nuclear family doesn't stay together. It seems at least, because everything in the Old Testament, it has two layers, right? That, that you have that external layer that first layer where God is counseling them, don't divorce your wife, you know, don't pick up a mistress as your wife gets older. Don't, you know, upgrade slash downgrade to some younger woman. Right. That's what he's saying. And, and one of the reasons is, is because he's like, look, I'm looking for something. I want to, I, I want you to produce something great together you you're not you're not in this just for your own need for companionship or sex or whatever but you are in this for that third that third person right that one that's between you and that's the ostensible message but i think that there's this parallel message that is laid up against it and and that is the thing i think when if we go with paul down this road and we say okay not only is this um some Announcement or pronouncement about marriage and what it's supposed to be like, but it is also a prediction about the Messiah and God's great purpose in the world. Uh, and if we go with him down that road and we read Malachi 2, then what I see in that is that God plans to put his spirit, the spirit of Christ, into other human bodies. And in doing that, to forge a union, an organic union between them, and in doing that, to produce offspring gods. To go from the God who is one
1: mm-hmm.
0: to the God who is still one, <laughs> but multiplied. He's growing his, his family. Right. Yes, he is, he is multiplying his son. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the one on Abraham. but just as a foreshadow or in you know, a spoiler, the name Abraham means, or Abraham Abram, Abram um, which was the original when we meet this man in Genesis 12, his name is Abram, right mm-hmm. um, which is exalted Father and that's a great name, right. Mm-hmm. You're going to go up from there? It's kind of like being promoted, you you know, founder, but you're going to be promoted. You know, you can't be promoted from founder, right? Um, and yet, he does get a different name, and that name is Abraham, right, or the father of a multitude. So it's a lateral move. You can't really go up, you know, from exalted mm-hmm. father. But you can't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that God is communicating something about Himself and that name change um, in in renaming Exalted Father to Father of a Multitude. And it and that name Exalted Father is only ironic when referred to Abram at that moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Because he's not a father at that right.
0: moment. Right. Yeah. That you know, when we meet him, he's seventy-five years old, he's got no kids. Mm-hmm. He's had to designate a servant in his household as his heir and that's the best he can do, mm-hmm. right? That's, it's all messed up. So it's only ironic, but, but God then, when we, when we contemplate God who is now engaged this, this man, who has for eternity past been exalted father, right? And we understand that there's a, an eternal trinity of father, son, Holy Spirit. So if you can imagine father and son held together or in union because of a shared spirit, the Holy Spirit. And they are, they, the three persons are one. The Lord, your God is one right now. How does the singular unique entity in the universe expand the joy of this love?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Right. (laughs) And I think from the very beginning, you can see the delight in God as he's creating these these beings whose one of their primary um, purposes and features is that they can reproduce. Or they can multiply. and so He blesses them you know be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. you know He just really likes these things he's made. He likes watching them do their thing, you know to become more, to expand.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, and yet the, there's this higher purpose that these these physical beings who are capable of of hosting spiritual life um, can become unified with Him, can become one. You know, it is the many becoming one, and so you have this trinitarian reality of three persons, one being. And now you have two persons, one essence here, creating the, the life, this third person who is inhabited. And in, in that union, what you see is the reproduction of one who is unique, who cannot be imitated, right? Uh, he can't be reproduced Mm -hmm. and yet there he is. Uh, and so this is the this is staggering and, and borderline if, if we were, you know, from a particular mindset, blasphemous mentality. But, it, you know, it's it's a beautiful scandal what God is doing. Um, so I'm on a bit of a rabbit trail. I could probably. So
1: this ties in with there. the church, right? So, yes. you know, because in some, in, in some ways what your point is, is not about marriage, but rather about the church. Yes. Christ in the church. Paul is saying, I'm seeing something in this marriage story mm-hmm. that refers to Christ in the church. And Christ in the church is is the redemption of humanity and the uh, uniting what was once divided. Right. Bringing people together in Christ, under Christ, people who are different, different backgrounds, uh, who were formerly divided and hostile against one another are now united in Christ.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, so there's some, there's some, yeah, the implications are that, um, not only are we united to him, not only does God have this high call for us to be co-heirs with Christ, as he says in Romans eight, to truly take our place in union, as in the second person of the Godhead right? That we are in Christ. It's not just some, again, not a metaphor, but that we are, our place in the eternal community is clear. We are in him. We are in the son. We're not, not it's not that some of us are called to be, in, you know, the, take that first place, right? As, as the father or that third place as the spirit, but as those who are sons of God, men and women, who are sons of God, who are now indwelt by the Spirit. And so, God has has put flesh on his son, right? And then he has, so he's made him united by sending him away, right? So he's left his father and he has become one flesh with us in the sense that he's been incarnated with us, right? And then he left his mother, his earthly mother, uh, in that he went to the cross. right? And John's careful to depict that, that severing of that bond as, as Jesus turns and says to John, look, this is your mother, and mm-hmm. to his mother, this is your son. That there's a, a leaving that's happening on the cross as Jesus is not only united with us, in the experience of living as a person, but also in the experience of dying Mm -hmm. as a human, Mm -hmm. which is that full experience. And so now he is fully united to his wife. God wasn't ever fully united to us. You know, he may have loved us, but that love, at least in our experience, could never rise above the level of say someone with a very uh, fond affection for their pet. And maybe that seems out of place, but I'm saying just, Relationally, if you cannot get into the experience of somebody, how can you fully empathize with them or whatever? And so now there's this identification that's come and, and because of that full identification, now the spirit comes forth right on, on Pentecost in Jesus name. We know the spirit couldn't be given until Jesus was glorified. And so he's been united to his wife. Now the spirit comes and guess what? You know, if that, if the same spirit in two or, you know, two different physical um, vessels makes you one flesh, one body, then Jesus is very much literally one flesh with us, right? And so that's a very, it's a very powerful truth. You see kind of this big plan of God all woven through this. Why? things happen that they have. Um, but then the implication for us becomes, um, how do we then treat one another? How do we worship Jesus? If when I encounter you, I am encountering a physical manifestation of the Son of God, how should I treat you? Right? Um, and so, and if Jesus could suffer pain through the work of Saul of Tarsus, what also, you know, can he not also suffer pleasure, or not feel pleasure, not suffer it, but but experience pleasure through an act of kindness. Jesus says in the Gospels, right? What does he say? Well,
1: you, you're talking about like when when you've done it to the least of these, then you've done it to me?
0: Yes. But he, say, he doesn't say the least of... These, he says, these are my brothers who believe in me, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Right. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be kind to other humans. I mean, we realize that that God has this love for his creation. But this union is among those who have his spirit, those who are Christians. And so God is creating this community that is intrinsically um, egalitarian because every member is equally one with Christ and equally one with every other member.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, we, I think we have a long way to go to live this truth out. But if we make that our aspiration, if we realize that the big goal, the big reason for all of this, that the way it's lived out in the full manifestation of the gospel is the participation in one flesh, that my treatment of you is my worship of him. And we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but kind of getting the bigger picture on it. Um, if we understood that, what would that look like? You know, I, uh, I, I fear that often when it comes to how we treat one another, we apply the way of the world, maybe earthly Best practices when it comes to um, philanthropy that we make brothers and sisters who are in need feel more like charity cases. They have to demonstrate their ongoing need or they're not going to get the help. And I'm sure there are practical realities to that, but it ought to be that our default and our joy is to help those who are in need because we see in them the one our soul loves. Mm-hmm. You know? And that it is only with a heavy heart and great reluctance that we might have to withdraw help because we see in them something unhealthy that is coming from our help, you know. But our our default ought to be just joy over the opportunity to serve and to elevate, you know, and to alleviate for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And that becomes our worship of God Um, Paul says this and and, uh, there's a couple of places so in Ephesians he talks about this uh, one body or this this um, that Jesus you know the the church is his bride but he also says we are his body and uh, you know how do you do that how are we his bride and his body obviously it's the one flesh it's not that Paul's mixing his metaphors right Mm -hmm. but that they are the same same truth um, I, I think if we were careless in reading the Ephesian letter, we might think he was just using two different metaphors as they became convenient to One, him one flesh
1: is the marriage metaphor, biblically. Yes. <laughs> and that's how we are his body and we're his bride. Exactly.
0: Yeah, so in Ephesians um, 2, he speaks of, our union with one another, right? And and remember, in his his formulation of one flesh says the two will become one flesh. Remember those, and we've talked about this in Ephesians two, he says, for he himself is our peace who's made us both one. Mm-hmm. So in the coming together of um, very different people, um, that Paul sees a fulfillment and an expression of the gospel. I don't think we can fully appreciate how much easier Paul's life would have been if he had just planted Gentile churches over here and Jewish churches over there. Mm -hmm. If he had just told the synagogue, you know, your Messiah has come. Rejoice. Mm -hmm. Carry on.
1: Right. He took great pains to work for the unity of Jew and Gentile. And his letters show that. And he's always addressing these Jew-Gentile conflicts. Right. And insisting that they love one another, bear with one another. Yeah. Despite those.
0: And the persecution he suffered was not because he claimed that Jesus was the son of God. Um, it was because he claimed that the Gentiles must be included in the community. And he, he says that in Galatians. Uh, he says, why am I still being persecuted if I preach circumcision? Mm-hmm. So he's basically saying if I preached Jesus is the son of God. You can be forgiven. Just have the selective surgery. Everybody's happy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. But he was like, no, I you know, he would prohibit the, the Gentiles from being circumcised because he insisted not just that these, that the Gentiles become Jewish proselytes, but that they come into the kingdom as Gentiles with all that that means that they retain that cultural distinctive because in it, Paul saw the fulfillment of this one flesh that, that in the church, <clears throat> this miracle happens that you have people who are, um, united and yet distinct and that you do not find that in human society. We try, oh, we, we you know, multiculturalism, culturalism, diversity, um, but, you know, the people who have the hardest time sometimes with uh, racial issues are people who've just been around uh, just a high concentration of somebody from a different culture. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I grew up very, very progressive, very uh, inclusive, anti-racist, but I also grew up in a white bread society. So from a distance, you know, but if somebody from other cultures comes in and they bring their music and their cultural tendencies, you know, and the way they raise their children and the way they eat and the food that they have and the smells that they produce. And you start to have this annoyance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in time, you start to identify those annoying tendencies with that person. And the next person who does that thing, it really makes you angry, right? It's when, you know, so it's easy from an academic standpoint to be Mm anti-racist, right? But in a truly pluralistic, multicultural society, to not only get along, but to respect one another's differences, to insist on the retention of those differences, to love one another in spite of those, to find a way forward with each of our distinctives, that's really, really odd. And um, I I think that that's what the church is called to as an expression. Now, it's not possible in every culture to have the kind of diversity we could have in the U.S., you know. But every culture has the, they have those pariahs. So in um, Eastern Europe, I just came from uh, Eastern Europe, and uh, there's the Romani people, the the Gypsies. The Romani? Yeah, the Gypsies. Mm -hmm who are universally hated and despised, right? Like, you just don't want them around. You don't have them over to dinner. They aren't clean. Um, and, uh, you, so you, you keep your distance, you immediately are on high alert if they come around. Now, these are roughly whitish people. <laughs> you know, there's not the, the racial difference. They're just maybe darker somewhat, but the, it's their cultural presentation that really gets them kind of banned in certain areas, right? Um it in those in that kind of a culture, so let's say you're a Christian, you're a leader in a church, or you're just a, a Christian, and maybe maybe your goal is to begin a mission to those people and to insist that they're included in your midst. Mm-hmm. Um in America, that old saying, you know, eleven o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week there could not be a greater indictment Mm -hmm. I think on the church than that if we're coming at it from a purely Pauline mindset um and and it goes both ways you know there 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 are African American pastors who would not want their congregation to be um included or or merged with a white congregation um and and that's the problem i think previous efforts in in bringing all of you know cultural backgrounds racial and ethnic backgrounds together is that um it really cuts both ways the in the past it's been like well white people need to repent and bring the african americans in right but uh that won't work because African-Americans don't necessarily want to come in. They're, they're happy. They have their cultural distinctive and that ways that they do church that make them comfortable. And certainly the ways that white people do church are not the way they resonate with God. And so they're perfectly happy to, to not come to the white church. Um, and yet there has to be, I think, strong exhortation and admonition that, no, you don't get to do that. I don't care how much you like it the other way. You know, I don't care if your church is going to grow because you can attract more African Americans by having, you know, this particular style of music. If you know, if you get, if you have to moderate that style, find a third way, something that's um, equally unpleasant to both and and mm-hmm. equally attractive to both. You know, then then do that because it's because not that's at about the heart you. of the gospel. It is at the heart of the gospel. It's not some sort of a Cute, um, missiological attempt, you know, it's not trying to be culturally relevant, it is this mystery that must be maintained. That Paul was ready to die over
1: the mystery of one flesh is not just a mystery of marriage, it's a mystery of the church. It is, it's the purpose of the church is right. to demonstrate God bringing the two into one, Those exactly, diverse God bringing unity uh, in diversity. Yes. Differences.
0: Use the word purpose. So here it is in, uh, you know, we talked about this, Ephesians 3, uh, that uh, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the heavenly places. uh, I guess if you back up to verse 9, he says, and to bring light to what is the plan, the purpose, right? The mystery hidden for ages in God. What is the purpose? What is the plan? What's God been up to who created all things? It is that through the church, his wisdom might be made known. Um, And so this treatise on the groups coming together is really about this mystery. If you back up to verse uh, 3 and 4, he speaks of the mystery again. Um, he says how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in the other generation but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs to members of the same body and so this is two becoming one but, you know, God, er, Paul goes on in Galatians 3.28 to talk about slave and free, about male and female, Greek and barbarian, Jew and Gentile. All of these lines that we draw among ourselves, they, they don't need to, uh, they need to go away, but each one should remain fully who they are within that. Um, that's the real mystery it says need a to go away in terms state. of how we treat each other right. I don't
1: stop being male you don't stop being Jewish uh, and so on and so forth but we the, the the differences go away in terms of how we see each other and treat each other
0: right and it so and I've been thinking about this if there is a commentary on our current uh, climate of LGBTQ if, if the gospel does say something about it it is that, there needs to be this retention of this divine difference and the coming together of, of different agents into one. So I, I do think traditional marriage is held up by the gospel because it is a heterogeneous union. Mm-hmm. And so the church must also be. It's an
1: interesting point. It's kind of like a, a unique point that you don't hear being made by Christians that um, rather than simply saying, well, this is just how God made it, so we need to honor it. Uh, You know, God made us male and female. God made marriage to be male and female. And God says it, so that settles it. It's delving deeper into what is is the underlying insight there? God is creating a unity in diversity. If you destroy the diversity, then it's not the unity God intends. right. If you say, "It male with male, that's not diversity. Female with female, that's not diversity." Um, God's intention is to make w- the make one out of two
0: different. Right, right. So there is, I think, there is a gospel underpinning, and there's something we lose that marriage is and family are like. So I, I would say that you know. Through the Middle Ages and the times when the the Catholic Church was keeping the Bible from people, but the the Gospel was still present in the in the ordinances, whatever you call them, right? The baptism, communion, and mm-hmm. these were depictions. But more ancient than that is marriage, mm-hmm. and to somehow change that the way that's presented, I think, is to begin to obscure an ancient. Proclamation of the gospel to begin to pervert it and twist it into something else. So,
1: and that's interesting. Uh, that that's the purpose of our series is to say to find ancient proclamations of the gospel. What are ways in which the gospel was actually present and being preached from the beginning through the Old Testament?
0: Right. Yeah. And so, if uh, if I were Paul and alive in this day, and the church was asking, what should we do about this? It seems to me that Paul would say that, the, you know, that Christ and his bride are one and that that it is the very the difference between them that makes it this holy mystery and not that they are uniform. I, I think uh, G.K. Chesterton said that in, you know, in God, red and white stand together in perfect harmony with an abhorrence for pink. Uh, That there is a need to retain the difference in this harmonious connection and that should we... and and sadly I, I think what we're seeing, what we've seen in the church is a tendency toward uniformity and I think that that is abhorrent to God. Um, and I think that in now in society where um, this LGBTQ um, whatever you want to call it a cause is on ascendancy, now there is an abhorrence for diversity again in thought, and understandably, I, I you know if, if you've been persecuted or made to suffer by a group of people, you probably don't want to hear from them anymore, <laughs> right? Um, but you know, I was on a Facebook group. It's called Religion Discussion. And I said, look, I'm all about a functional secular society. What I would like is the freedom to follow my conscience. And I would like to give you the same freedom. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I told them my position on, you know, homosexual unions and stuff like that. And they were just like really wanting to cast me out of the group you know they, they banned me twice from making comments and their uh, the admins encouraged me to leave the group and i'm like you know i'm not going to do that because i don't want to be in an echo chamber you're trying to create an echo chamber where there's only one idea one mm-hmm. position that can be expressed you know i'm willing to be hated by everyone in the group that's fine mm-hmm. you know I'm, i don't expect them to like what i say um, but I do expect to be able to be present, and I and I think that the church would have benefited. At, you know, what another thing that grieves me is all the times the church has differ has split over doctrinal differences. If we if we would have said, look, one flesh is critical, right? I mean, there are some things that are critical. There are others that are peripheral. We can let them go, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the debate on LGBTQ may not be right at the center, uh, but what is at the center is how we treat one another in the church,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know? Uh, and, and so, you know, someone may make the argument, well, gay and straight need to come together in one body. Maybe, you know, I, it, that, that, could be, uh, I, that could be the counterpoint. It, it's, it's by no means uh, finally settled. I'm just saying that as I'm wrestling through it, I want the freedom to be to wrestle through with you. Mm-hmm. I I think we would do a lot better job, and and it's going to hurt
1: because we're called to we're called to unity. Uh, it- in, in the midst of our differences, right? It's one flesh is at the heart of the gospel. And we need to feel that. We need to feel the pressure. Feel compelled by that. Right. Like called to that. We need to feel called to that. Nathan, I think you had one more point you wanted to make. What was that?
0: Yeah. Okay. So remember back in Malachi, God's purpose was to have offspring. Gods. Okay. Um, and so if you get down to Ephesians three, notice this. He says for this reason. Okay. So he said the purpose is that Jew and Gentile come together in one body. Unity and diversity is the purpose. That that's the whole point. So yeah, let's fight, right? Let's let's argue, let's struggle. They did, man. Mm-hmm. They had a fight over this stuff. They had right. to come together. Um, let's do that with the with the full assurance that as after we've you know rung the bell and, and we're done duking it out, that we're gonna love each other. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna go have dinner. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's let's not make divorce an option when it comes to the church. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, And so, but what happens with when we do that is the, this production of offspring gods. What do I mean by that? Notice he says this. He, he says that he's going to praise us for this reason. Because of this calling, right? All of this amazing thing that you've been called. He, he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every uh, paternity, right? The, there was this idea of the, of the paterfamilias in, in the Roman culture. And the, the Father supreme authority. And Paul's saying, look, that fatherhood comes from somewhere. Okay, so God's fatherhood trumps all of the the paterfamilias, right? (laughs) uh, And he says, in heaven and on earth is named, and according to the riches of his glory, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. By the way, this is a plural second person, in y'all's Mm -hmm. inner being Mm -hmm. right
1: in the church right so
0: that Christ may dwell among you or you know in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height, that, uh, breadth and length and height and depth. Okay, so love isn't a singular thing. It's not something we go off and, and experience on our own, right? It mm-hmm. is something we have to share among us. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing that, we're going to know him more. We're going to begin to identify with him, even as he's identified with us. And so to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God... Um, you know, this this love that we have for each other in the church, it's, it's, it's like a consummation, okay? That there's a full, a beginning to understand and experience this love. Okay, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly um, than all we can ask or think according to his power at work within us. So, but I want to notice this in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Yeah, uh-huh. you know? so this is this, this reproduction of, I mean, of God, right? So here's God who is one, God who is singular, God who is holy, God who has become a human, who has redeemed us, who has shared his spirit with us so that we might be filled, not with an inkling of God, but to his fullness. And that that is the reproduction, I think, of those offspring gods.
1: Hmm. Okay, that brings it full circle. Thanks, everyone. If you have questions or you'd like to continue this discussion, email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.